Of course, Bob Iger deserves blame for choosing Bob Chappick. Probably deserves blame for getting rid of him, too, and fomenting the coup. But he's, quote, a legend. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, November 22nd, and today Julia Yaffe is here with a reality check about the possibility of negotiations between Ukraine and Russia, a prospect recently floated by General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Julia explains that while winter is coming to Ukraine, the war isn't showing signs of cooling down. And later, Bill Cohan is here to discuss the shocking ouster of Bob Chapek and the return of Bob Iger as CEO of Disney. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of Powers the People. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Tuesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe, who is joining the pod from yet another undisclosed location in Europe. How are you doing, Julia? I'm good. I'm in a European bunker. (laughs) (laughs) Not really. I wanted to talk to you about something that's been percolating in the news lately, since we like to talk about the news here at the powers that Mm be. General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, came out ahead of the White House, I guess, and said he thinks that while Ukraine has momentum in the war with Russia before wintertime, they should come to the negotiating table now, you know, while they have the upper hand. And That, again, seems to have gotten ahead of the White House. It's not clear the White House actually wants that. But backing up, how realistic are the idea of negotiations right now? Having spoken to some of the parties involved in Washington, I understand the desire 
to wrap this conflict up. It's getting expensive for the U.S. There's a recession on the horizon. It's not helping energy prices or inflation in the U.S. There's going to be a new Republican-dominated Congress coming in, and they're not necessarily super enthusiastic about writing Ukraine a blank check, as Kevin McCarthy has said. From the Pentagon's point of view, you know, often you you see the Pentagon or the military side of things in Washington being the kind of more small C conservative side of the debate, because they're the ones who actually have to implement the thing. They have to put, in some cases, boots on the ground, though not in this case. They have to do all the logistics. They have to provide the firepower. They have to do all the stuff. From Millie's point of view, there's a feeling of, look, it's not realistic. Ukraine says it wants to get all its territory back, including Crimea, including the Donbass. There's just no way that's going to happen. It's very hard to get territory back. And it's not like to advance and capture territory. It's much easier to defend. That was one of the reasons that Ukraine did so well early on in the war, because they were just defending. And now the roles are flipped. Russia would be defending. Ukraine would be on the offensive, attacking, and Russia would be defending. So it would be harder for Ukraine. And this would be after 10 months of fighting, 100,000 troops on each side killed or wounded in action. Millie and his people don't think Zelensky's military objectives are realistic at all. In fact, one of the people close to him said to me, nothing is impossible, but this is pretty close. To have negotiations, you have to have two parties that want to come to the table. And the two relevant parties, Ukraine and Russia, do not want to come to the table. Russia might be a little bit more willing than it was earlier on in the war, but it's still not that willing. And you have people close to the Kremlin or who are mouthpieces for the Kremlin saying very publicly that either A, they would use the negotiations to stall for time and use that time to regroup, reorganize, rearm, and then carry out another major offensive, or B, that they still have the original intent in mind, the original intent of the war, that they still want to oust the Zelensky government and quote-unquote denazify the Ukrainian state and destroy it as it currently exists. I don't know how you negotiate with a party like that. And from the Ukrainian side, you know, if you believe, having seen what we saw at Bucha, at Irpin, at Izum, these war crimes that were allegedly committed by Russian soldiers while they were occupying Ukrainian towns and cities, if you believe that that's currently happening to your citizens while they're under Russian occupation, why wouldn't you try to liberate them? Why would you say, okay, we took one city, so let's negotiate and let's leave those people behind? Why wouldn't you continue pushing forward while you still had the military momentum? So I don't think either side wants to come to the table. So as much as Mark Milley, and I think there are people in the administration, in the State Department, who would like to see this wrapped up, that's great. But you need the two relevant parties to be exhausted enough to want to come to the table and find a solution that is not on the battlefield. 
and we don't have that yet. It feels like a lot of the quote-unquote diplomacy that has happened around this conflict, both in the run-up to it and during, has involved like the Germans or the French. Like It doesn't feel like the U.S. is going to be the outside broker here, given how frosty the relationship between Vladimir Putin and the White House is. If there were to be negotiations, in other words, it feels like those channels would come from Western Europe and not Washington. Well, I disagree because I think the U.S. is still Ukraine's main and strongest backer, strongest in the sense of it is the country with the most money, the most power geopolitically and militarily that's backing Ukraine. And the Russian government believes that Ukraine is not an independent country and is acting at the behest of Washington. So in fact, I think Washington pushing this might be seen as, okay, well, if their American masters tell the Ukrainians to go to the table, they might do it because they have to do what the Americans say because they're not, in fact, independent actors. They just dance to the tune played out of Washington, which is, of course, not true. But in certain places, that's a simplistic narrative. And I do think that Europe has also been very much following Washington's lead. And there is a reason also that certain German and French attempts earlier in the war to bring about a negotiated peace or to even float the idea that there might be a negotiated peace in the offing were just immediately shot down because neither country, while they are very important backers of Ukraine, do not have the stature militarily or geopolitically or economically that the U.S. does. With winter approaching, lots of questions out there about whether the power grid in Ukraine can sustain the country. You know, at the same time, Ukraine has demonstrated a a grit and a tenacity throughout this entire conflict that is pretty remarkable. And so the flip side of the winter is coming argument might be Russia could feel vulnerable and Ukraine should press the offense right now. Like if you're Zelensky, in other words, you could be like, okay, Ukraine, we're strong. My people, we're strong. Those guys, the enemy, now they're cold. They're frozen. They don't really want to fight right now. Let's go after them. Would that be his point of view? Or is that, I'm not obviously a military strategist. (laughs) Well, that makes two of us. But uh, I think that it could be true for both sides. And here I unfortunately fall back on my World War II knowledge. Well, World War II, War of 1812 knowledge where both the French invading forces and the German invading forces were stopped not by the Russian army or the Soviet army, but by the Russian winter. And in both cases, it was Russians and Ukrainians fighting side by side through that winter. For all of the analysis that Western analysts provide about the winter, these are not people that really give much of a shit about the winter. Like it has never held them back before in their lives. And I don't see why it would now. It's just like a fact of life and you know how to work around it and how to work with it and how to use it to your advantage. It reminds me a little bit of the all the talk about the mud, if you remember, going into the war, where it was like, oh, is it mud season? Is it is it is mud season <laughs> over? Are they going to invade during mud season or after mud season or before mud season? And it turns out it doesn't fucking matter. Neither the Ukrainian army nor the Russian army give a shit. If they want to fight, they'll fight. And 
neither wind nor snow nor mud nor whatever will stop them. I'm sure it'll affect things in certain ways. Also, I mean, the war started in February. It was fucking cold. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And remember, yesterday was the ninth anniversary of the beginning of the Euromaidan revolution, the ninth anniversary of the revolution of dignity. It started, in other words, in late November when Mustafa Nayem, who my readers will remember from an interview we did with him earlier in the war. He's now a member of Zelensky's government. At the time, he was a Ukrainian journalist of Afghan extraction, posted a post on Facebook and said, hey, we're really sick of this shit. If you are too, come out to the Maidan, bring gloves, bring thermoses of tea, and we're going to protest till this stops. And they didn't leave for months. They didn't leave for all of December. They didn't leave for all of January. And they didn't leave for most of February. And it didn't matter how many times they were beaten up. It didn't matter how many times it snowed. It didn't matter how cold it got. They didn't leave. As somebody who's also from that part of the world, who has seen other prognoses of the winter slowing things down, like protests or conflicts, I just don't buy that line at all. Um, Julia, thank you for joining us. If you can summon some kind of immigrant USA patriotism <laughs> while you're over there in Europe, send a prayer to the U.S. national team for this game Friday against England. We'll need it. Julia, have a great week. Thank you so much. You too, Peter. When we come back, Ben Landy speaks to Bill Cohan about Bob Iger returning as the CEO of Disney. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug 
for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, here on the mic with Bill Cohan to talk about the sudden ouster of Bob Chapek at Disney, the shocking news that the board had decided to bring back Bob Iger, effective immediately to replace him as CEO. Bill, there were obviously multiple factors that precipitated this event. Of course, tensions with the creative community, but obviously the number everyone has been watching is the stock price which has been dropping and dropping. But this is still a massive shock in, in Hollywood and on Wall Street. This sort of unsuccession is not unheard of, but it's a dramatic move for a company like Disney. Why do you think they pulled the ripcord here? You know, first of all, Ben, as we know, uh, our our partner, uh, Matt Bellany, has been reporting about, you know, rumors of this happening for months, right? And, you know, I think that's sort of quieted down before reviving more recently, you know, after they gave Bob Chapek a three-year extension to his contract in June, which sort of, you know, should have settled the matter, you know, at least for a few months anyway. That, to me, is sort of incredibly embarrassing uh, to give him a three-year contract and then oust him, uh, you know, fewer than six months later. Um, but, as you said, there were a confluence of events. Number one, of course, in August, Dan Loeb at Third Point Management, big hedge fund, came back into Disney after going into Disney in and around the start of the pandemic and making a lot of money and selling out. And then he comes back in August with a pretty coherent and well thought out strategic vision for what Disney should do, including, you know, thinking about spinning off ESPN, kind of loading it up with debt and reducing Disney's debt, uh, cutting costs. He wanted two board seats. He got one. And as you said, you know, okay, basically this year, which was Chapik's, you know, second full year as CEO, stock's down 40%, whereas Dan sort of bought his stock at around $100 a share, kind of a billion dollars worth, and then it shot up to like 120 or so, and Dan was looking very smart. Suddenly it was down in the, you know, in the 80s after the poor third quarter earnings report. The combination of the poor third quarter earnings report, the stock tumbling, you know, in and around 10% that day alone, 40% down for the year, Bob Chappick, not particularly, uh, apparently well-liked inside the company, pissing off the content creative community in Hollywood, being more of a sort of inside guy and a theme park guy and not a film and entertainment guy quite as much, although you could certainly say that theme parks or entertainment, you know, and sort of giving lip service to Dan Loeb instead of taking him seriously, even though his person, Carolyn Everson, had a, a board seat. You know, that's just not a good combination. That's just not being a smart CEO. I mean, 
you can't just pretend that these hedge fund guys who buy a billion dollars worth of stock or thereabouts are just going to sit there quietly when your stock goes down 40%. That's just foolishness. And you combine it with the legendary former CEO making noises about kind of wanting to get back into the game for whatever reason, because he's, you know, not going to run for president, not going to buy the Phoenix Suns and is maybe a little uh, aboard, uh, then that's just being politically tone deaf. And um, this kind of thing is what results. Well, Bill, this is what's a little confounding to me. Because, sure, Chapek was not a, a perfect boss. As you said, he alienated the creative community. There were a number of boneheaded decisions that he made over time. But the entire market for all the streaming companies are down. I mean, it is not just Disney. It's Netflix. It's Paramount. It's WBD. It's everybody. And on some level, isn't Chapek just executing the streaming strategy that Iger handed off to him? I mean, it's very expensive. It's, it's bleeding money. But I'm not sure what other choice they had. And I, I wonder if you feel like on any level, the board was a little bit panicky here making this decision. Well, I mean, again, the board looks really foolish because they gave him a three-year extension in June, you know, after much speculation about whether that would happen. Remember, I mean, that didn't just happen in a vacuum. And, and by then we already knew that the streaming service was expensive, even though Disney shot to the top of the streamers in terms of subscribers or near the top. Sure. And the stock was already down considerably by that point as well. I mean, obviously it had its, I think its worst drop in 20 years after that Q3 report. When they re-upped his contract, the stock was already down considerably. Right. But it also moved up considerably uh, after Dan Loeb announced his stake. And this news alone increased the value of Disney $12 billion, equivalent to like one GE on the day that Jack Welch took over GE in 1981. That's a big move up, a big move of support, a vote of confidence that at least investors think Iger's the right guy and Chappick was the wrong guy. But, you know, look, uh, <laughs> when the stock is down 40% in the year and you're the CEO and you're not like a, a founder blocker like a Mark Zuckerberg, those guys can block their departure and, and may have, for all we know. Chappick is a steward. He's a fiduciary for these shareholders. He serves at the pleasure of the board. He's kind of, you know, a clerk, if you will. He can't block those kinds of moves. He serves at their pleasure. It reminds me kind of, of you know, what happened at, at GE, not once, but twice, when Jeff Immelt invited Nelson Peltz and then Garden, his son-in-law, Tryon Partners, to come into the GE stock holdings uh, ownership in uh, 2015 to, in effect, ratify Jeff's decision to sell GE Capital and use the proceeds to buy back stock. And when that didn't happen, two years later, they got rid of Jeff Immelt, brought in John Flannery. He uncovered, you know, all of this mess that Jeff Immelt had left behind. And but he had a short tenure. Too. He only had 15 months before trying, you know, bared its teeth again for the second time and got rid of John in flavor of Larry Culp. You know, this is something that just happens a lot. And to think that it doesn't or somehow that, you know, Dan Loeb will just be benign is foolishness. Right. Disney's not the first company to have a, a messy succession battle like this. But Iger had 15 years to choose a successor. And he, he passed over some superstars that were rising up at the company. I think of Kevin Meyer, Tom Staggs. Now he's back for another two years. 
during which time he needs to find a successor again. At some point, you've got to lay the responsibility at Iger's feet, too. Just like Jack Welch blew it uh, for picking Jeff Immelt and then told me he had made a big mistake. He had two plus years to find uh, his successor at GE. He chose Jeff Immelt and decided he made a mistake. Of course, Bob Iger deserves blame for choosing Bob Chappick and probably deserves blame for getting rid of him, too, and fomenting the coup. But, you know, he's, quote, a legend, Ben, and legends uh, get passes for these kinds of things. And I'm sure Dan Loeb uh, probably thought it was a great idea to bring Iger back. I mean, Iger is, you know, he's 72, but he's young and central casting CEO and had a great track record uh, running uh, Disney, uh, obviously at a great time, but, you know, executed on a lot of important strategic acquisitions that made Disney the powerhouse. And and that's sort of what Dan Loeb wants it to be, which is the powerhouse of the industry. And it's, and it's looking kind of, I wouldn't say vulnerable. It's certainly performed, uh, you know, better than some of its competitors. Again, hedge fund guys do not sit around and just wait and twiddle their thumbs, hoping hope is not a strategy in hedge fund world. Action is a strategy. Bringing in a replacement CEO who was a legend is a strategy. Stock reacts. $12 billion in value just plopped right back on in Dan Loeb's account. Just so you know, I, I did email Dan Loeb uh, last night. I wrote in an email, <laughs> well, 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 and did not get a response. That sort of leads me to believe that he knew this was, uh, you know, in the offing. But what do I know? Yeah, we'll see how things evolve. I mean, like you said, the, the stock popped. Um, this is Monday morning. We were recording this uh, Monday afternoon. A, a couple percentage points. Billions of dollars in value, still down for the month overall. So obviously, I, I think the street, like us at Puck, we're all sort of in wait and see mode to see whether Iger, of course a legend, but can he turn the ship around? Or on some level, is this move as much about having a, a familiar and trusted presence back in the C-suite when Chapek was not delivering that sense of security? But Bill, thanks for stopping by. Looking forward to your analysis on Wednesday. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.